Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 58 of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry. And this week, I've got Shirley Tan from e-commerce systems on the show, where we're going to talk about running a successful online store. And so Shirley has over 20 years of retail experience, and she's been in the e-commerce game since 1997. And so she founded AmericanBridal.com and grew it from a business that had 500,000 in annual sales to over 6.5 million with 30 employees before finally selling the business. And so now she does e-commerce consulting and speaking over at ecommercesystems.com. Shirley also has a new book called Ecom Hell, where she shares her lessons in e-commerce so that you can also avoid getting burned when starting your own online store. And before we start, we got a Another five-star iTunes review, this one from Jimbo Stan over in New Zealand. He says, love hearing Terry's chats with talented entrepreneurs. His conversational style is relaxed and relaxing. I always learn something new. Sweet. And so something else that's going on. I was just in China last week visiting my supplier for the leather walls to get some more samples and product lines made. And so I got to say, if you've never been to China, you'll be in for a shock depending on where you go. So I actually got this super bad flu on my last day. And so I think it's actually pretty normal to get sick if you're visiting China. And so kind of here are some three tips uh, if you do end up visiting for the first time. Uh, One, I would say tell your supplier the address of your hotel uh, because you want to know how far it is from the factory. And so you have a realistic timetable of how to get there, either by cab uh, or by the metro or whatever. So if you don't know how to get there, you can always call them from the taxi so they can tell the cab where to go. And tip number two, when you go out for lunch or dinner, uh, it's actually very common in China and even Hong Kong to kind of rewash your utensils, plates and bowls before you eat. So what happens is they'll give you all your utensils when you sit down, but then there'll be a plastic bowl and then they'll give you a kind of urn of tea. And then what, what you do is you rinse your chopsticks, uh, you rinse your bowl, and you rinse your plate again. And and it sounds kind of weird, but I think the purpose is that uh, it allows the guest to rinse it again yourself. So you have this kind of level of comfort that, hey, even if the restaurant didn't do a good job cleaning it, uh, at least you could do it yourself again. And I know it's a little weird, but uh, it is what it is. Tip number three, uh, be careful of theft, uh, depending in some of the more rural areas. Uh, So it's not an occurrence everywhere, but it does happen once in a while. Uh, to people close to you. So I've heard this enough uh, from people I've met uh, this time around. So they've had their phones taken from them on the subway during the winter when it's crowded. Uh, other people have stuff stolen at train stations. Uh, but in the end, you know, just be careful on what you do when you visit. Uh, sometimes, you know, these people that are migrant workers, they're poor and they'll, they'll maybe they'll, you know, try to take a phone to buy a train ticket home or something like that. So uh, don't leave anything unattended. Uh, you know, don't dress flashy. Just keep a low profile and uh, you should be okay. So with that being said, uh, let's just get into this week's episode. Today we have Shirley Tan from e-commerce systems where we're going to talk about how to operate and run an e-commerce business efficiently. And she's also recently come out with a book called Ecom Hell that we'll go into a little bit later. So Shirley, uh, who are you and what do you do? Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me. My name is Shirley Tan and I am a rebranded myself. I'm an e-commerce strategist and I help small to mid-sized businesses optimize their business process as well as uh, integrate their online marketing processes. 
your background before uh, getting into the consulting side of e-commerce? So my background was uh, I'm a retailer at heart. I started off uh, having uh, working in my family hardware store, you know, right in the storefront, ringing up customers and and things of that nature. And also then when I went on my own, I started a uh, a retail store, a couple retail stores. One is a wholesale retail, you know, did something similarly in product product lines. But, you know, I'm a retailer in my background, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so how many years have you spent kind of offline and online? Like if you had to separate them? 19 years in retail. Uh, and this is on my own, not including the, you know, my the gig with my parents' business. And uh, 12 years in e-commerce. Wow. So you've been at e-commerce pretty much since the beginning, huh? You know, 1997. Actually, we were online 1996, but we completely had no idea we were what we were doing. And even in 1997, we had no idea what we were doing. But we actually had a bona fide site on Yahoo uh, in 1997, whereas before we had kind of a catalog looking like website. So if you go back to the Wayback Machine, you go, wow, that's interesting, ugly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you mentioned catalog. Is it because kind of how e-commerce started? It, it was kind of just offline retail and then people put their catalogs online that you can buy in the store and then it, the store shopping cart finally moved online? Or how did that transition? Actually, that's really interesting that you asked me that because we actually did have a uh, physical catalog. Uh, that's how American Bridal started was a physical catalog. And we would take pictures and do photo, you know, photographies and write the product description. And so I think if you go back to the Wayback Machine, you would see that where we had the catalog scan and we thought people would just like order right off the catalog and call us, right? That's what we were hoping for uh, at that time, but nobody called us. So um, then we discovered Yahoo Store and then we progressed from there. And Yahoo was one of the first, first platforms ever for e-commerce, right? They bought somebody that I cannot even remember what the name was. And I chose Yahoo because I could teach myself how to do some of the easier stuff, you know? And we had a designer design the store and all that you know, the things that people should do. I was able to add the products myself, which is the aspect that I wanted to make sure that I didn't have to rely on another expert to do, you know, the daily stuff. And so what was e-commerce like back then? Because now you have like, you know, all everyone that does SEO, you have this content marketing, all this, you know, like email card abandonment campaigns. Like back then, there were these tools. So what was it like just to have your Yahoo store? Wow, that's a good question. Let's see. That takes me down memory lane. So back then, there was nothing there, right? It was just like, it was, uh, you know, it was like wild, wild west. Nobody knew what they were exactly doing. At least we didn't. I still had the retail store. So I treated the online store was like a side, you know, hobby business. Like, we'll just kind of do it you know, just because. I couldn't tell you what the revenue was, you know, back in the day. I just couldn't even remember. Maybe 50000 the first year. I mean, I'm not even, you know, I'm not even sure. Our goal was just to get the products up there and hopefully somebody would find us. So there was no such thing as SEO back then that I can recall. And even if there was, I wouldn't know how to do it back then. But there was directories, I remember, or something like that. I believe it was just Alta Vista, and look smart, right? Back in the day, we're, we're showing our age here, Terry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, so e-commerce was like, it was a side business for us. You know, we didn't take it seriously. The retail store was, you know, doing uh, nearly a million dollars or so. And um, that was our primary bread and butter. I see. So it was kind of just, you know, we'll put it on the side. We'll see where this goes. And it's not important to us because there's other stuff. To worry about. Right. And because we didn't know the potential. 
to be honest. I see. And kind of just to bring on a tangent, you know, do you see that's kind of the sense with mobile right now and where we're at in 2013? Or? No. Mobile is a completely uh, a segment of the market that needs to be taken seriously. You know, it's, it's like back then when nobody took e-commerce seriously. The prolific, uh, you know, everybody has a, you know, basically a computer in their hands, right? It's, um, it would be very foolish for people. I know two, three years ago, people were going, oh, this is the year of the mobile. This is the year. I think 2013 and 2014 is definitely uh, where mobile is coming to the forefront. And people who are not taking mobile seriously are going to get left behind. The mobile includes tablets too, right? Or the definition. Exactly. So to me, that that's anything that people, mobility, uh, you know, easier, right? So tablets, you know, all of the iPads. Uh, I mean, even to a certain extent, laptop, but not really. Yeah, because I think, I think maybe like two, three years ago when they said mobile was big, the term of like the adoption curve, it was probably still early. Like the people, early users are saying it's going to be big, but then you still have like this gap from kind of the mainstream market, which I think now you're starting to see really it's just everywhere. I think the minute Palm starts selling the Treo, is <laughs> not so much use. That's when I think the push was. That's where I guess the, the tipping point Right, because back then everybody had BlackBerry, everybody had a trail, right? I had one. And and you couldn't do anything with those things other than call people and maybe check your email, right? That's that's my opinion. Yeah. And for me, you know, I kinda guess this was when my mom was using her iPad, you know, to like she's like, you know, she likes buying houses, right? Kinda like the old Asian lady. So she's just browsing houses on this app in like the neighborhood and she's instead of walking around talking to agents, right? So it's kinda like when you know, the older generation can adopt it. It's kind of a sign that, okay, it's, it's a little bit mainstream now. So. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you can just do so much with the iPad. It's amazing. Visually for like, you know, the aging population, because they can magnify things. Screen size is not limited to what's there. You could expand yeah, it. And I think when you plop them in front of a big computer, they're kind of intimidated, or at least it's like, oh, it's just the computer. I don't need to deal with this. But when it's something... You can just sit on the couch and kind of use on your hands. It's a lot less intimidating too. So. Exactly, exactly. I agree. All right, very cool. So let's go back into time a little bit, back into American Bridal. So uh, you were saying the e-commerce store was just kind of on the side uh, as a side hobby. So when did you realize that uh, it was starting to overtake the offline side in terms of sales? So I've been in retail for a really long time, right? I sold my share to my partner in 2004. And because I started American Bridal, and it was always my thing. Uh, he's just like, well, he always wanted to do the store and he didn't want to sell the store. So I said, well, why don't you take the store and I'll take the online. And at that time, the online was doing half a million dollars or something like that. And when I basically separated the business, right, I knew that I had to basically make it work because I didn't have the revenue of the retail store to lean on anymore. If I had to choose to say, well, what was the single piece that made you you know, successful, right? is I think focus. I was now not by choice, right? But, you know, kind of by choice, right? I had to shift my focus to one thing and the one thing only. I didn't have to worry about the retail store and I didn't have to worry about, you know, the customers coming in in that way and then managing all the employees and ordering. I had one thing to do and I had, and not that those things didn't encompass the e-commerce. The primary thing that for me to do was make the e-commerce business an income, right? Livelihood, you know, provide livelihood for my family. So I think the one single thing where I didn't have to like 
put on a different hat, you know, the store hat than the retail hat, you know. I didn't have to do those things and it made me much more focused on what I had to do, right? I wasn't diversified, you know, or split into different parts. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned, you know, the offline got split from the online. So how did the message work in terms of the customers? Like when they went to the offline store, they say, hey, we we sold our online store to someone else or like... Yeah, so actually, good question. Our Actually, our physical store had a different business name. That one had its own website too. Technically, we were in three businesses. We had AmericanBridal.com, we had Rumors.com, and we had uh, Rumors Store. You know, there was three parts to it, but I only took the American Bridal part, and he kept the online with the store. And so you were saying how the online started kind of as a hobby, and you see this grow. Uh, you finally move it online. So you know, what was the online landscape like now that you know, you kind of just jumped into this full time. Did you have to figure out online marketing or and all this kind of stuff? Everything, everything had to learn. Um, and you know what was interesting, Terry? Um, the day that I took over happened to be April first. We disappeared from Google. Not that we were or you know ranking high. I was on page eleven and I disappeared from Google. So can you can imagine, right? I was like, wow, <laughs> what happened? It was it was um, total. You know, like light on light the fire under. You know my butt kind of thing, right? And I had to really figure it out. So I had to learn what SEO was. I had to learn, um, you know, I didn't really pay attention to Google because, well, I didn't know I was supposed to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but I think that happens to a lot of people. So right? they start out there like, they don't, they don't know how Google works and kind of the whole industry behind it. You start your store for like $20 and you realize, oh my God, like, what is this? Like, why am I not ranking? Well, the thing is I started my store before Google even existed. So it's kind of like, Google who? (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, who are they? Why are they important, right? So, I mean, they were only going to, you know, organize the, you know, the the information around the world. And I started seeing competitors show up. It's like, who do these people, you know, uh, who are these people and how come they're number one? And, you know, I started, I, I learned fast. I'm a quick learner. That's one thing that I am. So how did you learn SEO in like 2004? Because now it's very easy. You kind of just Google whatever you don't know. And generally people have figured out the basics, right? Like the on-site stuff. It's the, you know, off, off-site kind of link building stuff that always gets penalized. And but, but what were like the basics of just finding it out back then? Well, you learn pretty quickly, right? When you know that the most important uh, search engine in the world and you're not showing up. So I, I had actually very interesting question as well. I actually had the uh, opportunity to work with my competitor. So back in the day, it was um, my competitor at that time was my wedding favors. And the people who started wedding, my wedding favors is um, Brad Fallon and um, his wife, Jennifer Fallon. Part of the sort of like, um, I guess, master plan that Brad Fallon had at that time was to, you know, he ranked my wedding favors number one. And then he was selling an online course to sh- tell people how to rank online, just like he did. I took the online course and there was several more classes, intense seminars and conferences that they that they set up and I attended I attended them. So I learned a lot from the competition. Nice. So did you feel it was kind of like the, hey, let's just figure this out together type of mentality? It wasn't like that because they were very knowledgeable, right? Him and his partner, Andy Jenkins, they were very knowledgeable. And I learned a lot from the group. You know, they had not just the two of them, but they had um, instructor faculty members. So there was a whole series uh, of really talented people that came together to make 
that uh, organization really work well at that time. All right, and so let's go back to the online store a little bit. So, uh, you know, it's 2004, you figured out SEO, you know, you have this online store all to yourself. You know, where do you decide to say, okay, this is these are the things I need to do to focus and kind of execute to take it to the next level? During the time that we were trying to figure out how to get back to, uh, into Google's good graces, right? One of the things that I had to do was really restructure American Bridal because we didn't have the uh, retail store anymore. So we actually physically separated the business, right? And we had to start basically from zero. We moved to a new location. We had to had our own, create our own back end. And I had to, of course, the things that you do in a retail environment is very different from the online, right? So online people, I mean, in the, in the store, people will walk into the store, pick up something and bring it to the counter. And that's how we actually operated it. We just left things the way it was. And when people order, we would go to wherever it was in the store, go get it and go ship it out. I learned pretty quickly on my own that I had to structure it differently. I had to uh, organize the inventory a different way. And I had to get a backend system that was not necessarily, uh, you know, POS uh, driven, but was um, e-commerce driven. And there wasn't that much choices, you know, back in the day, in 2004 even, right? I mean, there are big enterprise, you know, uh, solutions, but they were, you know, very costly for a small guy like us. I see, I see. And so you but you've had a good retail experience from the back end that you can kind of take that into online too. One thing I am is I know how to, you know, uh, organize things you know in my in my head, right? I, I I there's a certain way I think things should be in terms of logic of how you would pick, pack and ship and organize how would you go find products. So I have that retail experience from that and I just took it to make it more applicable to warehousing and less suitable to to retail. And so from your experience there, you know, what are kind of like the biggest tip in terms of kind of organizing your logistics and the back end that you have for kind of someone just starting up? One of the things that I would say, it seems obvious, but it, it took us a while to figure this out, right? Because sometimes you organize the warehouse by, let's say, a certain vendor, or you organize the warehouse by a certain type of goods, right? So people kind of do them differently dep- depending on what their type of business is. But for us, I re- started reading all these management books, you know, on Lean and Six Sigma. And I was thinking, okay, how would we apply some of those things into our business, right? So one of the things that we did was move all our bestseller closer to our pick and packer. Even though there's no, it's, it's, it, it breaks the, you know, the convention of the category or the vendor. We move all the bestseller closer to our uh, picker so they don't have to go far, you know, to, to, to get it, right? So it's like, how do I minimize the steps? Or even the walking step is actually what I'm referring to. So we did this across the board, right? For, and then we started getting into production. We actually were embroidering and engraving our products. And that's one of the things that made us unique, right? That you can't just walk into a physical store to go to go buy it, you know, as easily or readily. And also that back during that time, there wasn't as many people doing personalization. So that was one of the core competencies that we had. And so one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we were, people were able to say, you know, I scoured the internet and I really don't, can't find it. And they seem to have it for a good price. So even though I haven't heard of them, I'm going to take a chance. So we made sure that we fulfilled our marketing promises by delivering on time and and delivering efficiently and exceeding customers expectation with in regards to the product right when they get so especially personalized products you really could like wow people because it's like wow i i saw the picture but 
it turned out even nicer than I thought. You know, that's one of the common feedbacks that we got, right? People were very impressed with the quality of the uh, embroidery, as an example. I see. So just to give everyone an idea, how many products were you working with at this time and how big was the warehouse? So the warehouse, so we moved four times in four years, um, Terry. So Wow. <laughs> yeah. So we kept outgrowing our space. We were in a thousand square feet and then we moved to a 3,000 square feet, then we moved to a 10,000 square feet, then we moved to 20,000 square feet. But back then, there weren't any things like uh, Shipwire, like these 3PL companies that do logistics for you too. No, and and we actually, by 2006, I think Amazon started, um, you know, doing more, I think 2007, maybe it's 2007, where Amazon was doing more like third-party fulfillment. Because we personalized our own goods, we really couldn't take advantage of those other scalable um, operations that 3PLs would provide, as an example. But one of the things that we did do is that uh, we also had some of our vendors dropship our goods. The things that we didn't do in-house or the things that were too bulky uh, that didn't make sense for us to bring it in, especially because we're out here in the West Coast, we would have to pay for the shipping to come back only to have most of this go back to the Midwest, you know, and to the East Coast, right? A lot of our customers were in New York, in Florida, Texas, um, Atlanta, so it didn't make sense for us to ship things over to ship things back out. Whichever areas that we could, um, you know, optimize efficiently in terms of even the costs, uh, we did it that way. And then whatever we could bring in that we had better margins, as an example, and that we could personalize. If we had to touch it, we want to bring it in. So that's that was sort of like the formula. I see, I see. All right. So let's back up a little bit, kind of change gears. So we were talking about, you know, you taking American Vital by yourself and you're really scaling up the business, you start by kind of moving the best sellers to kind of closer to the pickers. And so this is kind of like the offline side. Right? So what about the online side? Like how did you, you know, scale the customer service and kind of do the online marketing, the whole shopping experience actually on the storefront? In terms of, you know, so we did, you know, the, the things that people should be doing, right? You know, email, card abandonment, uh, A-B testing. So that's the marketing end, right? Bringing in the customer. Uh, I'm a really big believer that, you know, you have to do all those off, you have to do all the online efforts, right? You have to maximize your online effort. But I think one of the areas that people do ignore is the offline uh, side of it. They don't really uh, use their customer service personnel uh, or staff uh, in a more optimum manner. So for example, right, a lot of people think that customer, a lot of businesses treat their customer service like, well, they just answer the phone and take care of problems. And and I actually, you know, disagree with that. I think that customer service uh, customer service department is actually a it can be a profit center businesses can do a better job by um, making sure that their customer service people are really trained on the products right and uh, they're doing their you know best to upsell and cross-sell the customers whenever they can get the customer on the phone so one of the things that people do is like well I don't want to answer the phone they don't even want to show their phone numbers online or they they have a phone number but it's not an 800 number because they said well we don't want people to call they should just get their information online, right? I actually was part of this uh, focus group study and this guy was really funny and actually he kind of became kind of friends, right? But during the time that we were on that thing, uh, on the focus group, he was like, oh, I don't want people to call. 
I, you know, we're going to let voicemail take it, you know, if maybe uh, they should get the information online. It's very funny how a lot of entrepreneurs think that way. And I think that that's, there's a disservice to the uh, customer, number one. And also, there's also a missed opportunity to engage the customer because if you don't talk to them, how do you know how to use your stuff? Why are they buying from you? You don't get those kind of information because uh, they ordered from you. You know, the, the website just becomes an order taker and the people who are just answering the phone shouldn't become an order taker either. Yeah, you can't, you can't figure this out within a vacuum, right? I mean, where else are you going to get this feedback if you don't talk to people? <laughs> no, exactly. And if people are actually going to call you, that's your chance. You know, you should be like, hey, how long, you know, how much time do I have to, you know, talk to them? Instead of the other way around, people going, well, you're only supposed to spend two minutes with the customer, hurry up and get them off the phone. That's what a lot of companies do, right? The, one of the metrics that they track is like time on call. You should track your time on call, but you should actually figure out what your time on call is about. Yeah, I think like the analogy is that if you say you go to like like what's like like you go to like Metreon in San Francisco, and then you know you go to like the you know like Armani store, and then you, you know, suddenly you walk in the store, you know the salesperson says hi, and then they run away, and then everyone all the staff runs away, and then you're kind of left in the store yourself, right? It's like what they're doing online basically. So right, and you know, and sometimes when you go into Macy's. Beautiful store, everything is nice, everything is clean, but you can't find help. Well, what's the point? You know, I'm not going to buy a $300, you know, uh, mixer without asking questions, right? I mean, it's just not likely to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm not going to just pick it up and go check out with it, too. Right? So, no, exactly. exactly. Awesome. All right. And so uh, you said the business was kind of like at 500000 this year. And I, and I read somewhere that you eventually sold it for a figure, right? And so you know, how did you kind of realize that, okay, you know, this is something I want to let go and kind of move on to something else? In 2008, I realized that I had to you know, put more money into the business, right? And I wasn't willing to bet the family farm. And I just figured that um, I didn't have the, uh, you know, the financial backing of it to, to, to make it happen. And the kind of money that we're talking about is, you know, not just like a couple million dollars. We're talking about several million dollars, right? To really take it to the next level. And at that time, I just decided that, you know, I've been working so much. I've been working ever since I was pretty young, right? And in the family business and all that stuff. And I, my kids were at that age where they would be coming more home from school and there was nobody home. And so I wanted to be home at that critical age where they, you know, I feel like they need me, you know, the age that they're more impressionable and uh, I can have more influence. So I just decided that, you know, I was going to prepare the company to be sold. So uh, optimizing the back end, because uh, I didn't know who was going to buy me. So I had to make it in such a way that it can be turnkey. Whoever takes it over, you know, they can take it over from day one. Putting all the processes in place, you know, uh, putting all the technology that we could afford in place so the next business owner would be set up for her, you know, success. I see. And, and just to go back a little bit more, when you say, you know, you need to take it to the next level, or are we talking like, doubling the sales or tripling or kind of just to be like the number three competitor kind of just to have an idea we were already like at that time we were already ranking number one number two and we were doing you know nearly uh, seven million dollars and but of course we were also diversified we had like seven websites so you know that whole thing about the focus thing I didn't learn that until afterwards. 
<laughs> so that, that's what most businesses do, by the way, you know, is big corporations are just as guilty, you know, which is they start diversifying because they start thinking that they have to be, you know, they got to capture this market. They got to capture that market as well. So one of the things I learned is like, you know, I remember now. What made me more successful was the only thing that I had to do was this one thing versus, you know, spreading my uh, mind share in all these different businesses, right? Because imagine trying to optimize for seven websites, pretty tough, you know, seven websites, seven strategies, seven, seven everything, you know, seven, seven PPC campaigns, seven SEO strategies. It's like, you know, it can be uh, a little crazy. Yeah, and, and I think just by the math, if you grow one business, say 10%, overall, your revenues are growing by like a little amount, right? When you're spread around like seven plus websites too. Exactly, exactly. So I think uh, would, we would have been better off, you know, maybe, you know, diversify a little bit, but not. So, and I didn't diversify uh, too far off, right? We had a bridesmaid side, we had a groomsman side. So we were still within the space. So I think that those were good strategies. The ones that were probably bad is the baby side, the business side. Uh, yeah, I'm a mom, but it doesn't mean I know what to buy, you know, for the baby side. It meant that we were selling baby gifts and not baby things. Does that make sense? Things that baby would need versus what baby, what people give to baby because it's a gift. I see. The, the end the customer that buys is different than the user of the product, right? Exactly, exactly. And therefore, I mean, w- but when we were doing it, you know, when we were creating a website, we say, hey, you know, we got a cookie cut formula, we have a warehouse, we got all the, you know, we got the, the order processing in place, we got the order management tools, we got, we know where to buy this stuff because we go to all the shows, we see all this stuff. So the temptation for the sh- shiny penny, you know, is always there, right? It's like, ooh, squirrel. <laughs> you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you brought an interesting point because a lot of people who start out, they say, oh, hey, you know, I enjoy golf. I play golf. I'll just start a golf store. Right. But I mean, what's kind of like the big misconception or homework they miss when they think that well, way? I think that's fine. Right. You know, it's that you have a passion about the category. Right. But first and foremost, is it profitable? So I, I find now that I talk to clients or people at conferences or they, they're, they're stuck in this category, they're making less than 30% margin and then the, uh, the expenses that weed away, right? The merchant fees, the, you know, now this oncoming uh, market tax uh, fairness act, right? All these little expenses that kind of, that adds up to big expenses that weed away at your margin uh, is what the you know, what uh, these entrepreneurs are finding challenging, right? Pay-per-click costs more now. Uh, you know, SEO price, you know, people who optimize for SEO, their their bill is bigger. So there's just more competition. Um, some of the people who wish they weren't in that category, they were only looking at it from one, one lens, which is, oh, I like golf and therefore I'm going to do golf. You know, you got to figure out what is Callaway doing that, that they're leaving money on the table and what can you do that they wouldn't, I'll go after it now that they see that you're doing well. That's why when I wrote my book, I started out with the keyword research first. Instead of saying, okay, go do the, all these, uh, uh, you know, start your business or, you know, incorporate and all that kind of stuff. Because I think you have to figure out what you're going to do and if it's profitable before you go do all the other things. Because I think that in itself takes a, 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 a while to, 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 um, to figure out. Yeah, so it's interesting because I recently just kind of source the product myself from China. So so let me run through my methodology and you tell me if it makes sense. Does that sound good? Okay. 
Okay, so what I did was I did my keyword research. I went to see the monthly demand first, uh, kind of exact match, and then I looked at the top 10 SEO to see if they were actually they were actually beatable. And then once I did that, I went to Amazon to see what's selling. I went to Amazon, eBay, Etsy, just to get an idea of the different price points and kind of how different products sold out with prices. Uh, and then once I got an idea of that, I, I went to Alibaba, kind of found a supplier, and I think they list the FOB price on the website, right? So now you can kind of guess based off like say a 1% conversion, uh, you manufacture it at X cost, you add maybe like another 10, 15% for shipping, other expenses, and you kind of have a baseline of if this is worth getting into. Not really like exact, but you have a ballpark idea of, okay, this is probably the best case scenario. You know, if I'm number one ranked for these keywords, but at a terrible conversion rate, this is kind of the realistic situation. And I can decide, okay, it's not profitable enough for me. Uh, I'll look for something else. So. Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, when you do the projection, right, you have to also do you know, the expense component, right? What is it going to cost you to run the business? You know, if you are really running the business full on, because you, you have to anticipate that you're not going to be able to do it at home in your underwear long enough, right? So if you were actually to bring somebody in and you actually had to rent space, so it might have been a profitable model for you if you were running it out of your house and, and all, all of that good stuff, right? But the minute you had to grow, all of a sudden that model went away went out the door even if you had volume because you, of course you some people go well my sales are going to grow well that's true but is it in this is it going to grow enough so for you to be able to layer in all these expenses and that's the component that people miss because they don't do the projection part they don't have a business plan and then people go oh my god business plan you don't need a business plan you know but you should have enough of a plan to anticipate the what ifs. And so I guess, you know, now with the tools, like the gross margin is easy to calculate. It's the net with all the expenses that go in. Right. That's hard to kind of guess, right? So, you know, do you have any tips for kind of someone starting out? Like how much, like say like a $100 product, you can get it manufactured at, you know, $20, but how much more expenses should you build into the margin? You know, your biggest cost is going to be your um, marketing and labor. You know, generally they say rule of thumb, uh, labor somewhere between 18 to 20%. Okay, and then uh, marketing, the more you spend in the beginning, hopefully you can capture, you know, the market share and, uh, you know, somewhere around my rule of thumb back then was about 10%. And I imagine that it's probably a lot more now. It depends on what you also allocate to be marketing, right? So for me, what I dump into that marketing umbrella is SEO, any kind of advertising, third-party vendors that are along with that, right? So any kind of agency that helps manage PPC, uh, you know, SEO, copywriters, you know, anybody that's regards who helps us with our marketing, you know, uh, is part of the marketing budget, right? Uh, email campaign, email platform, you know, even bits and pieces of the graphic artist's time, right? If you were to allocate her time, because that's what she mo mostly does, uh, then that would be part of that budget as well. So margin is key, right? So in, in my book, I say you have to at least be able to have 40% margin because I know that margins is kind of dwindling down. And, uh, but at the start, right, you need 40%. Okay, so mean- uh, Is it 40% net? No, no, that's, that's gross. Minimum, minimum. Of course, the higher the better, right? Anything north of that is great, okay? But if you don't have 40, you're not going to end up with anything. 
you know, and also I think average dollar value is also very important. So in my book, I say if you sell, you know, your products at $35, you have some things at $19.95, $20, $15. So let's say your average order is $20, you're not going to make any money because you're going to be selling a lot of, you're going to be shipping a lot of $20 orders that are going to kill you, you know, in the long run because it's just too much handling that's going to eat away at that. You know, you have your sh- your shipping, your boxes, your your payroll, your your lights, I mean, your marketing. I recommend if you could $75 to $100 average value, that's that's a good number. And just so I make sure I understand, so is that if you're having $40 products and you have $10 products, basically the $10 products will drag your average uh, selling price and the margins down that you'll get eaten away by your marketing and shipping expenses. And also your labor. Because those stuff is fixed, right? But then you're having low price products that aren't helping. Right, right. It takes, you know, the time that your fulfiller, right, your employee needs to go and walk over there to go grab a $10 item versus a $100 item. It's the same amount of time. You have more room in a, in your $100 item because you make, let's say it's a keystone, right? So it's 50% markup. You have $50 there versus five or versus 10 Right. If your average order is twenty dollars. So that's that's a huge difference. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting you mentioned 40 percent gross because, you know, either the way to get money is either you lower your expenses or you raise your price. Right. But at a 40 percent gross, you really don't have much squeeze room to change your expenses, like to really push them down because they're you're not really making any money, right? Well, the, the biggest myth about lowering your expenses, and a lot of companies did this, and even you see it now, why during the recession, a lot of companies made a lot of money is because they cut everything to the bone, right? But the, the truth is that model is not sustainable, you know? You, you can only pay your uh, employees, um, you know, minimum wage for so long. You can only get away with not providing insurance for so long. They're not sustainable efforts. In the long run, those are going to catch up with you. So the real question is not that you can cut your expenses to show Wall Street, you know, that you're making so much money or your your, your board of directors that you're making so much money. But it's like, is your, mo- is your business model sustainable to begin with, right? Is there actually demand for the product? Is there a solution that you're providing to your customers that they will come uh, and buy again? You know, it's it's the mind share, you know, just like are people going to think of you, your company as the default for that product product category when they need it or when they need to, when they're going to refer it, you know, like a soda, right? What, what do we think of? Coke or Pepsi. So that's what we think of, right? When we think of cell phones, you know, you think, okay, Samsung, or an iPhone. And back in the day, it used to be uh, Motorola and what was the other one? See, we can't even remember. <laughs> Nokia, Nokia. So, so the, the default thing is like, you know, you have to be always first and foremost in people's minds, right? Because marketing is about grabbing mind share. It's not about the product. Look at McDonald's and Burger King. McDonald's is not a great product. It's terrible, but we still eat it. They're still the number one fast food because when we think of fast food, we think of McDonald's. Yeah. But that, that that happens to a lot of people, right? They get caught up in that I need to have my product perfect before I start selling it too. Right. People are forgiving to a certain degree. And if there's enough there that they know that you're going to improve it, just like the iPhone, right? I mean, as much as you know, the first version wasn't great and they kept improving on it. And so we kept buying and we kept upgrading. I'm on my iPhone 5 now, you know, and I swear I wouldn't, but I did. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. There's a book by Clay Christensen. I don't know if you've heard it, The Innovator's Dilemma. Have you heard of that book before? I, I've heard of it, but I haven't read it yet. 
Yeah, it's interesting the concepts he talked about. So he's basically talking about why leaders in each market always get eaten away by a second player, like kind of iPhone and Samsung and like Burger King, McDonald's. And there's an interesting model of how it works out because say, I think even like a company like Salesforce ate into like Oracle, right? Kind of what you're from. So he was saying how basically a company like Oracle starts out, you know, they're the leader in the market. But a company like Salesforce can't really build up a, such a robust system. Uh, over time, they can keep improving themselves, eating the bottom end of the market, kind of like the lower end users who can't afford Oracle, but still want kind of like an enterprise system. And then over time, as they get better, what happens is the speed that Salesforce gets better is not as fast as what Oracle customers want. So in terms of the cu- new customers wanting right. new features, upgrades, it's not as fast as Salesforce upgrading, and by that, by after a couple of years, they catch up. And so I thought about this too. Like you look at the uh, Samsung and uh, the iPhone. Like the first Galaxy was just terrible. Like it was a joke, right? But you know, you see the two gets a little better, and then three was really when people started looking at it. Like, oh wow, this is kind of something to look at. And then now four, like you know, it's kind of like all over the place too. So, so I I think the key thing is contrast. So if you can't beat the guy, you know, the number one guy, then you have to be able to offer a contrast and to do something that they're not doing. But what is uh, your competition not doing that you can do? So like one of the things that we were doing before in American Bridal, just to tie it back into the story, we were offering embroidery, right? And our competitors were going, these are the four four letters or the five styles that you have and these are the thread colors that you have. That's it. No names, no no nothing. No, no, nothing, uh, nothing that deviated from from the way that they standardize things, right? So we would tell people, we let you pick the font, we let you pick the thread color, we let you put a name, we'll charge you $2 more. And we were able to upsell for something that wasn't there. And people go, well, for two bucks more, it's a name, you know, come on, right? You know, easy peasy, right? All day long. I mean, and and so those are the kind of things that there might be some opportunities that entrepreneurs can look at. I mean, think of Zappos when we, when, when they offered free shipping both ways. Everybody thought they were crazy, right? But they're successful. That was their whole thing because nobody was willing to do it because everybody thought they were crazy. Because if they thought they were crazy, then you can't do it because you must be crazy too. <laughs> but, but they were able to build that business on that model. I mean, other you know, on top of that, great customer service and all that stuff, right? But they had one thing. You didn't know that they had great customer service until after you bought. So what was the one thing that lured you to buy from them? Well, because with shoes, when we go to Nordstrom to try on, we don't try on one pair and say, thank you, you know, walk away. We want to try on 10 pairs and maybe not buy anything, right? Because it didn't, you know, it didn't fit. And and basically, Tony Shea removed that friction, which is, what if I have to return it? And he goes, no problem. Well, I don't want to pay shipping back. You don't have to, you know. So those are the kind of things that I always say to my client. What are you willing to do that your competitors are not willing to do? And what are the, what are the things that your, the big players will not get into? So as an example, anything that's labor intensive, the big guys won't, don't want to get into it because it's too much of a deviation from their standard operating processes. Mm-hmm. And so for someone just starting out, like, how do you audit your competition in terms of finding your own advantage, like what you were just talking about? Like, is there like a step-by-step process you can kind of tell us? Or? Well, you have to shop them. That's the easiest way, right? You know, you, if they're publicly traded companies, there's all kinds of information. But at the end, you know, if they have social media, I mean, there's so much more information out there than there were even before, you know, back then, right? They didn't have Facebook during my days, you know, and um, not really. Right. Um, not, not in the level that it is right now. And um, 
I think you have to basically shop them. You have to, you know, you do you have to do your homework. Mm-hmm. I see. All right, very cool. And so, you know, one thing I want to get your input on is, uh, you know, when you're thinking about products, you know, I think there's the school of thought where I'm going to create something brand new, or you can just kind of take something that's on the market and improve it. And what would you say to kind of both models, uh, kind of what, if people are thinking about either one? So the question is, create something brand new product or uh, tweak something and make it better? Yeah, or like I say, I bring it to a new market. Like say, you know, like high-end cat furniture, but I'm going to take it to like, you know, bird bird cages or something like that. I think it depends, right? Um if you have, you know, the resources and you have the long, you know, the sustainability to to move forward with uh, a product that you feel that people are going to really uh, adopt, there's profit to be made there, and there's a problem to be solved. Then, you know, why not be, you know, first mover, right? So the question is, will people look to you? your company for that solution, you know? So for example, why did Google have such a hard time getting into social media or, you know, in the same space as Facebook? Because Facebook already owns this space of interaction, right? Where uh, people are friends that are there, you know, businesses, people, you know, that are all chattering, you know, nonstop, mostly wasting time. But <laughs> other, you know, there's 10% of productivity there, I'm sure. They, they have a hard time getting in, right? They try with Buzz and now with Google+, Plus, they're not trying to say, hey, we're like Facebook. Finally, I think their messaging is a little different, right? And so I think that's going to be the key thing. It's like, if you're going to see the Me Too, it's, it's very hard to uh, shift people's uh, mind share because they've already, you know, glammed onto one, you know? It's, it doesn't say that you can't be number two. Right. But if you're number two, you got to have a contrast. You got to offer something that people could say, well, yeah, the number one guy, you know, we, we like underdogs. You know, we want to do business with underdog as an example. Right. Um, like with Avis, you know, Avis says we're number two, but we try really hard. Yeah. And I guess to take that a little further, once you figure out kind of your core value proposition like that the marketing kind of just comes naturally too, right? As long as as it's, you know, you're still basic fundamental business principles, right? You're solving a problem. You're taking care of your customers. uh, uh, There's there's a need in the marketplace. All right. And so let me just go back to another topic we talked about. You were talking about how you had uh, six or seven websites. You were kind of just spread too thin. And so there's a lot of people online saying that say, uh, you know, you got to niche down, you know, as specific as you can online now, you know, don't worry about going too small. And, you know, do you find that to be still the case for e-commerce or is it just that only is it only for like blogs and like other stuff? So especially today, right? It's Amazon's world, right? And if you look at the way Wayfair, which used to be, I think, CSN stores, the way they've you know, they had all these 300 websites. They, they were either creating them or they were buying these little websites together, right? And they kind of like, you know, connected them in some manner. But look how they kind of like combine everything and says, you know what? We're really in the sort of baby furniture, uh, home furnishing, you know, business. So why don't we put them all under one umbrella and, you know, have this brand? Because um, it was just too much Everybody was all over the place, right? You probably, they had, you know, how many brand managers taking care of this, taking care of that. And they probably still had 
all these different brand managers today, but now they're only living, you know, they eat, live, breathe one thing, which is Wayfair.com versus before they had baby something express, you know, I mean, all these crib cradles, something, I don't know how all their websites, right? But um, I mean, that shops did the same thing. You know, they had, they, they gobbled up all these little websites. They had all these small websites, but now they are, they're hay needle and they're, one umbrella because it's just too you know you're you're wasting a lot of resources in terms of energy and time so they opted to go that way for the small guy unless you have you know multi-million million you know like they do it's 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 much much tougher so again you go back to the uh same advice as earlier right what are all these people not willing to do that you can do so a lot of people are not willing to inventory maybe that's what you can do and it starts from just researching your competition, figuring out what they do right now, and then find a hole somewhere in there that you can plug or be different. Right. And I think really people who are just straight up drop shipping in the long run, it's, it's going to be really tough to sustain that model because it's too, the barrier to entry is too low. And um, even if you were first online, right, it's just uh, you don't control the products. And uh, you see this really uh, prevalent in Amazon because on Amazon, it's just race to the bottom. You, 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 you discount it by 10%. You think you're, oh, I'm going to you know, sell more, right? And the guy goes, well, my computer will automatically discount it by another 10%. And you're like constantly, you know you know, lowering your prices and then thus eating into your margin and, you know, it's just a race to the bottom and that's not a good way to, you know, it's not a sustainable business model. Yeah, because I know some people that are doing okay with shot shipping, but I think in the long run, when you don't control the manufacturing, you know, the supplier can just, you know, shift orders between their own distribution. It's kind of like, you know, not sh- shaky grounds to build your business on too. Right, and not only that, but, you know, the your suppliers are competing with you. You know, they're like, hey, you know, why should the people I sell to have all the fun, right? And they're getting squeezed for margins too. So they're competing with you and they're going they're going online themselves. They have their own e-commerce stores. They have their own Amazon presence. They have their own multi-channel. Pretty tough out there. So the key thing is to control your own goods and to do the, the, the type of products and services that the competition is not willing to do. You know, big competition, small competition. Yeah, it's interesting. There was someone that was telling me for dropshipping to work, you really need a mismatch in terms of the supplier's distribution ability. Like they need to not have that so that you can add value and plug in that arm. Otherwise, why do they need you when you just rank for, you know, say like 100 keywords? Like really, what's your value add? to them so. exactly and also you know maybe you seek out the supplier that's less technology savvy so they're not likely to get into the marketplace to compete with you right or you basically you don't even tell them what you, where you sell your stuff on you know <laughs> so they just yeah, like but i think but i think at this stage they'll find out at some point too so yeah it's yeah like, it's true it's true and it's 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 much much you know there's definitely much more transparency than there was before yeah, exactly. Very cool. All right. And so let's move on to your book a little bit. So uh, uh, I believe it's called E-commerce hell. So, you know, how do you... E-com, e-com hell? Yeah. So how do you define e-com hell for, you know, the, the user? Who are you writing this to? So the inspiration for the book was uh, to take the ideas of all the things that we 
you know, I, you know, a lot of the things in the book, in, like a lot, almost all of it. Okay, uh, I would say ninety nine percent of the book is like come from personal experience. So if I didn't have personal experience, I either didn't mention it or I say that you know that I don't have experience in this, right? But I mention it in the context, you know, because it needs to be somewhat complete, right? Comprehensive. A lot of the inspiration for the book was to basically share all the learnings that I had, you know, cumulative of my retail and online experience. And to help whoever wants to get into e-commerce go in with their eyes wide open. So I remember many times, even though I've been in business for so long, I go, man, I wish I knew that. Oh, I wish somebody told me that. You know, things of that nature, right? That you just, um, you would, let's say, perhaps made a different decision, you know, or uh, didn't do what you did, right? Uh, execute differently. Uh, so my goal with the book is like a guidebook. Uh, there's a, a whole lot of checklists for each and every chapter. And it's basically uh, like a benchmark for you to say, okay, I'm not sure what, you know, standard protocol is, but, you know, I'll use this. And I'll then from there, adapt it to the ways that would work for your business, right? Because I'm you know, for sure, I'm not saying that this is the, you know, the holy grail. This is the Bible for e-commerce. But for a small entrepreneur, this is a very good way to get started. And it's, it's a good book for the feedback that I had for all the, you know, friends who's helped me. Uh, thank you, by the way, everybody who's helped me, um, uh, you know, proofread the book. And is that it's, it's really good for people who also are already in business that are like they're struggling or they're saying, hey, what can we do better? Uh, it's a really good benchmark against um, some of the best practices that uh, you want to follow. Yeah, and I think it's definitely worth checking out because you've started an offline retail, you know, and then you took an online store from like 50,000 to 500,000 and eventually to like 7 million, I think, like you said. So you've really seen a whole range of kind of growth of an e-commerce business and eventually selling it too, right? So and, 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 and then selling and then going through the, you know, the selling and transition as well. So I didn't touch so much on that, but I did touch on the topic of selling the business, you know, what you had to do, how you would prepare, and uh, which is a lot of the other things, if you did the other aspects, right? Um, business processes, workflow, documentation, creating a knowledge base, if you did all of those things, um, should help you become, you know, your business become more turnkey, which is the goal, right? Because nobody wants to buy a problem. Nobody wants to buy a problem. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. It's like getting yeah. someone's leftovers house and then you have to like clean it up and then. No, it's, it, exactly. You know, no, you know, sometimes, you know, the contractor will tell you, we just like start over, you know, take it all out and start over because it will be easier and faster than trying to figure out somebody else's mess. Right. Yeah, exactly. And if you have to do that, you probably overpaid too, right? To have to like clean someone else's house and then rebuild it and all that too. So. Yeah, awesome. All right. And so, you know, before I let you go, uh, you know, what are some tools that you think uh, e-commerce owners should definitely use? Like kind of like besides your basic email marketing stuff, you know, Google Analytics, is there anything that you would really recommend uh, people have in their arsenal? Wow, uh, that's a good one. I wasn't prepared for that one. Let's see. <laughs> uh, I was going to say that there's this, they're not too new. They've been around for a, a little while, I think two, three years, so, which is actually good. Um, I really like turnto.com. Uh, and one of the things is because um, they, it's like a question and answer uh, model where your customers are answering the question on your website, asking the question on your website. And it's also your customers, you know, the ones that are active in your community when you 
you know, create that community that actually go and answer those questions as well. It creates uh, user-generated content. It adds fresh content on your website. And on top of that, I believe it's SEO-friendly. So I think that's, uh, that's a good one. Turn2.com. So they're basically like your ambassador is what I'm getting, right? Like they answer your, they're your fans and then they start representing you answering questions? Or? Right, right, exactly. So wow. you might say, hey, um, I'm having problems with, you know, uh, opening this product, right? For example. Uh, and then, you know, customers might chime in, right? So it's kind of like Facebook for your products, but the only thing they do is talk about your product instead of everything under the sun. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, get your customers to work for you, right? You know? Uh, and let them be your, you know, evangelists and uh, be your maven and talk about how they they can teach the people how to use the product, which is, you know, test, it's like testimonials on a, on a you know, uh, on steroids. <laughs> yeah, they're like they're, they're like better than salespeople could ever be, right? You don't you're not really paying them. So. No, no, exactly. And you know, uh, I think one of the people who used to uh, did, you know, I think they did this uh, years and years ago was Giam. Uh, G-A-I-A-M, I think, dot com. They do yoga equipment and yoga gear and things. Really phenomenal site. And they were one of the first people who did this uh, like about four or five years ago to bring this out. You know, they have a question and answer. And I thought that was so cool. And then, but of course, it wasn't available to the small guys, right? So now there, it, it is. And uh, turn2.com. So that's one of my, and I like Zendesk a lot as well. You know, the ticket system, you know, over time, your your email, you know, people emailing you grows and, and you're just not going to be able to manage that. And if you have multiple people answering emails, how do you know they took care of it? You know, uh, how do you track it down, right? So Zendesk is really good for a ticketing system for um, inbound email tracking. Awesome, awesome. Okay, Shirley. So, you know, just to wrap things up, uh, where can we find you online if our audience wants to connect with you some more? So, um, my website is e-commerce systems with an S dot com and I'm also on LinkedIn, Shirley Tan and uh, I don't Twitter as it turns out as much as I should but I'm always on Facebook so it's just my name, Shirley Tan. I got in early and was able to get my name. So, facebook.com slash Shirley Tan. All right. Awesome, Shirley. Thank you so much. And uh, I guess we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much, Terry. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.